Hey there, it's Kelly from Zinimi. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to invite you to one of our greatest trainings ever. It's how to build and grow a profitable solo or group practice sustainably. All you got to do is check it out at zinimi.com slash podcast. All right, on to our episode. Everybody, welcome to the Starting a Counseling Practice podcast with Zinimi, where we talk with therapists all over the country and all over the world to share their success stories of starting private practices that make a difference. Today, we have a very special guest who's also a fellow podcaster sharing his journey of starting a practice. Um, Patrick Hassal is here. Patrick, will you introduce yourself and um, even share the name of your podcast? Because right off the top of my head, I don't recall it, which is hilarious and embarrassing in this moment. That's how my brain operates too. And I appreciate you having me on, Miranda. (laughs) Um, I'm Patrick Cassell. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor and addiction specialist, but I also am a practice coach and I own All Things Private Practice, the All Things Private Practice podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So I always like to start with this particular question, which is in a minute or less, why did you decide to become a therapist or a mental health counselor? Minute or less. All right, let's go. (laughs) Um, I decided to become a mental health counselor because I struggled my entire life with mental health and addiction. Uh, My mom is a social worker, albeit retired. And I just always felt connected to people who were struggling even in college, my friends would kind of make fun of me because I would be talking to people who were homeless or disenfranchised or, or really struggling in general. And I've just always had that um, intuitive sense and, and that draw. So it, it felt like the right career path after many failed attempts. Awesome. And at what age did you start to, did you decide to actually pursue um, the, the master's degree to go down that path? It was in 2012 when I started. So I'm 35, do the math, uh, 25. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And how long did it take you from the point that you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to enter the master's program and into the point where you were done and licensed, how many years did it take? Finished my master's in 2015. I was working full-time during the day at a homeless shelter. So I could only take two classes a semester. Mm. Um, at night. And then I was fully licensed by 20, the end of 2017 going into 2018. Mm -hmm. And what was the most surprising part for you in terms of the licensing process? (laughs) Oh man, I worked at a community mental health agency like so many of us have and got promoted into middle management fairly quickly and they lost all of my hours. So Mm. I basically had to start over And they were unwilling to write any sort of documentation like, yes, these hours have been accrued. Uh, I was just very surprised by that. And and unfortunately, I hear that so often as a horror story with a lot of my coaching clients of just supervision that just went awry. And Mm -hmm. I just guess I always assumed that counselors had their shit together. And uh, obviously, I know now that... that things are very different than I, than I kind of uh, perceived at first. Yeah. I mean, that's honestly, that's how I got into coaching was trying to navigate my own licensure process 
and then starting a group for people who are studying for, for licensure exams and finding, oh, wait, we're not the only one trying to navigate this and to teach our supervisors how to supervise us and to teach them how to fill out the paperwork and how to navigate it. And if we kind of trust them to do it, it often is stories like yours. So um, it's, it happens so often. And it's really sad because this is such an important profession. We shouldn't be adding in like additional obstacles. <laughs> like we shouldn't be making it harder. There should be guides through the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you mentioned you started that uh, when you came on my podcast a couple of months ago. And I think that's such a valuable resource because associate licensed therapists can feel so lost in the process of like, okay, I assume that wherever I'm working has my best interest at mind, but also has like this roadmap for me to go from point A to B. Yeah. And it's just, unfortunately, we, we have such a uh, dysfunctional system in so many ways and, and things just fall through the cracks. It's really fractured. Well, and you think at the very least, if the agency didn't know, the school would be helping you and guiding you through the process. And the school is saying, hey, no, go to the agency. And the agency is going, oh, no, go to the school. And you're just sitting in the middle going, I don't understand. I actually went to, before we go in the private practice, which is so funny, I actually went to an interview when I was um, going into graduate school and they said, we're not sure if we can hire you. Can you ask the school if you're hireable or not? Cause they didn't know what they were looking for. And then they, yeah, the whole, they ended up getting me another jobs until I could be hireable, but they didn't even know the process. It was so funny. So from the point that you got licensed, how long after that did you decide to go into private practice? So I was working at an agency for almost three years as an associate licensed therapist. And, you know, being in middle management, you deal with a lot of, you know, back and forth. You can't ever, you can't ever please the higher ups who are not like boots on the ground, so to speak. And your staff just never has enough resource. And it was so overwhelming. I was working like 60 hours a week in a walk-in 24 seven crisis center, like pulling overnights when my clinicians couldn't make it. Like if my nurses called out, I had to figure out coverage. And I ended up in the hospital, like because of the anxiety and the stress. And that was my breaking point. I had been thinking about private practice, but it seemed like such a unattainable, like unrealistic goal. Mm -hmm. um, kind of the, what we don't know, we don't know situation. Mm -hmm. And once that happened to me, I was just like, something has to give because yeah. this is not sustainable for me. And maybe I made the wrong choice going into this career. Mm. Um, and I remember, um, I don't know if you know Jane Carter, but she's here in Asheville and she's now a coach, but she came in and spoke at our graduate school about private practice. And I always was like, oh, wow. So this is a thing that we could do. And then I started connecting with therapists in the area who were in practice and asking them questions. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I'm not doing the CMH job anymore. Like I've got to get out. So that's kind of when I made that decision to take that leap. Awesome. And when you started your, your practice, um, that was in, was it 2017, 2018? Yeah. Right around that time, late 2017. Okay. Late 2017. Um, what was the first thing that you did to actually like get ready to open up? subletted an office space from my clinical supervisor. I figured like, if I did that, that would really motivate me to start putting the pieces in place. Mm. And how long did it take you from that point to get your first client? Oof. 
I think like six months, but I wasn't doing anything to get clients. I just had the mm. office. I don't even think I had a site today or like a website. I wasn't networking. And then I would be like, why am I not getting any phone calls? And then it was like, well, you're not doing anything to get <laughs> phone calls. So nobody even knows that you exist. Yeah. I think this happens a lot where people will, um, will sublet from someone or share an office with another clinician and they'll say, oh, well, you know, that person has a practice. So they'll refer people to me and it will just sort of magically do this process. And that's just not really realistic in most cases. It can happen for some people. Sometimes somebody out of the goodness of their heart will just take all of their hard work and just funnel it over to you. You know, it, it makes our life easier, but that is, you know, not the, the, the norm for most cases. If they have that many referrals coming in, they often will expand into a group practice. They'll hire someone um, and going through that, going through there. So that place of, oh, there's just this plug and play practice where I don't have to do any of the marketing is unrealistic for most people. And even when it is there, it's also sometimes unsustainable, right? So I've definitely had people who I've worked with where it's like, oh, the person that used to refer me, everyone, they closed their practice or they died or, you know, they expanded into a group practice and now all of my referrals have dried up and I've seen people close their practice over it because they didn't have an option, right? Yeah, so absolutely. I, I've seen that too. And, and another thing that's a misconception is if I just have a psychology today page, I will get full. And I, I coach clients or yeah. people on that all the time. I'm like, that is just one very small piece of the puzzle, yeah. especially in saturated areas. So yes. I just think it's important to recognize like there's a lot that has to go into a sustainable practice and, and yeah. constant flow of referrals. And that's a, I, I, a Facebook group, but we both run Facebook groups, right? So it's the best question, right? Somebody says, Hey, what do I need to start a private practice? And you get these answers and you know, there'll be like, you know, five or 10 people. They'll say, you just need a psychology today profile. And there's no context for, Oh, there's only five people, or you have a very specific niche in your area. And you happen to also have a well-written psychology today profile or whatever the scenario is um, that you have versus someone else where there's 300 people in your zip code that have the psychology today profile. So what was the turning point at six months that started getting your clients or started, you started getting it together to say, oh, I'm going to, this is a business. This isn't just a something that magically happens. I'm starting a business, not subletting a space. Yeah, that's a great question. Networking. Um, I preach it all the time, building relationships. And I had been doing that uh, throughout those six months, not as, not as much as I had intended, but I started working with men who struggle with addiction at first when I opened my practice. So I started reaching out. We have a lot of like rehab centers, detox centers, uh, residential treatment, IOPs here in Asheville. And I just started reaching out to them. And I was like, hey, I am an outpatient mental health and addiction therapist. I work with men. Uh, could I come tour your facility? Because I need to eventually refer clients to higher levels of care. And although I had no clients, it wasn't an, a false statement that was going to have to happen. And yeah. I just started getting these responses of like, yeah, come in. When do you want to come tour? And when do you want to come meet us? And some people didn't respond and that's okay. And um I remember really making a connection with someone who owned a halfway house here, this younger guy. And 
he sent me, I think 20 clients over a month and a half where he was just like, listen, you do good work. We want male therapists. Um, can I send you the guys in our treatment facilities and our halfway homes and our SIIOP programs? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And it went from like zero phone calls to like the dam bursting where it was just yeah. like call after call after call. And I think that energy also becomes contagious. Like we get those dopamine hits, right? And then we have like more openness and abundance mindset. And then all of a sudden, like all of these networking um, relationships started sending me clients and I became known as like the go-to referral source for men struggling with addiction in the area. Awesome. So when you're doing this process, right? Like you said, hey, I, there was a lot of like figuring it out kind of as you went right? Did you decide initially, was this a private pay or an insurance practice initially? Initially, it was a hybrid. Um, I definitely didn't believe I could get private pay referrals coming out of agency mm. work. Um, mm -hmm. And also working with the addiction population. But what I quickly realized is like in addiction, there are so many high-end treatment centers that exist. There are programs in my area where it is $30,000 a month to go there. Mm. So to compare it to $150 an hour, it was nothing. It was like a drop in the bucket. And then also parents of adults with addiction are usually going to pay for treatment because they want their child to heal and get better. Yeah. And I would be getting calls from parents of adult children, which is a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> but they would be willing to pay me because they're like, I want my son to see someone who is who knows that world um, mm -hmm. and specializes in this the struggle because we've tried so many things and they haven't worked. Mm -hmm. So I, I just moved into that mindset of like, if you really get the person's struggle, if you really know how to put yourself out there and market that, mm -hmm. then that will come back around. And it definitely takes more time than just saying like, I take every insurance under the sun, but yeah. it, it really did work out really well. That's awesome. So can I ask like, what was the worst reimbursing? Not, not the name of the insurance, but what was like the worst kind of reimbursements you got? <laughs> <laughs> I will happily name it. So Cigna in North Carolina is shit. And I have like, they have high copays and I had a client with a $50 copay and I got a check from Cigna for $12 because the reimbursement mm. rate was $62. And I looked at the check and I was like, what is this? And I realized like, <laughs> oh, this is the remaining like reimbursement after the client has paid me their portion. Yeah. And that was a big impetus to be like, yeah, I, I'm not doing this anymore. This is outrageous. And there's, and there's also, I think it's so interesting too, when you come from agency work initially, right? The idea of making $60 an hour sounds like, well, I was making 22 or 18 or some 35, like I'm making $62. That's double the amount until you get into what it actually takes to even the time to bill that, even if you're doing it automated, even with the practice management systems, because there are all these little things that they throw in at you where you're ending up on the phone for three hours for that $12 check or whatever scenario it is. And you're sitting there thinking, did I just spend three hours on hold for like $36? Like wh where's the math here? <laughs> like, I don't understand what's going on. Um, and I think too, even the, the self-employment part of that 15% that 
across the United States, no matter where you get, before we're talking about federal taxes, before we're talking about state taxes, there's that 15.3% self-employment tax that's coming off the top. And you start taking some of these things off, your expenses, your time, your energy. And suddenly you're like, I could be make, working at Starbucks and I would have great benefits. Like, what have I done? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's so true. I used to bartend. I, I can't tell you how often I thought I could be bartending and making more money than this because <laughs> after those three hours on the phone for that $12, that's $4 an hour for you yeah. to spend doing admin work that is not enjoyable where you yeah. could have been seeing clients yes. and then you're not getting reimbursed the day you see that client with that, no. that $12. That was like 45 days later when that check came. <laughs> And then you can have the experience. Did you ever experience clawbacks or um, recoupments? Yep. <laughs> this is and this is the piece of like people do not understand the idea that like you have 30 days to to do all your admin work and make sure that they have everything. It's in perfect form for them to pay you back. They can pay you back in you know another 45 to eight weeks. And they're sometimes in their contract, like something ridiculous. And this is dependent on state to state. Some states have really good regulations that help to protect the provider, but many states don't. And then depending on your state, it could be up to a year or sometimes six or 10 years where they can come back and say, you know how we said that this person had insurance and that all of this was good. You know, we changed our minds. So you need to pay us back. Or actually, instead of you paying us back, we just took that money out of your next check for the person you're working with right now. Like, oh, it's mind blowing. It's infuriating um, it, and it makes no sense. And you try to call, you get passed around to different departments. And by the end of that, I just, I was like, I, how can you have the patience to sit and do this for hours every day? And more so, what about like when you have the client do that, when they're like, oh. okay, call your insurance company, figure out your benefits, like track this down because this claim isn't getting paid for whatever wonky reason. And if I don't even know how to understand and like navigate the system, how can I expect someone else to? And it, it's, it can just be an absolute nightmare. Well, and, and here's the, the one piece of that that I think is really fascinating is that when it comes to the client, the client, because they're the actual customer of the insurance company, they're not the contractor, the client has a patient's right advocate. They have some people that are there that are there to help them navigate that. So as, as crappy as it is, they have a fighting chance. We as the contractor who signed off on this contract that was 700 pages long because it said, you know, according to Appendix A and according to Appendix B and according to the provider manual, when you add up all of these things, what you signed off to was 700 pages of legalese and you're like sitting there. Okay. I know we could talk about the, the perils of insurance. And again, not all insurance is bad. Not all programs are bad, but the, you know, these are the pieces that we sometimes don't understand the bigger picture. And you made the decision of like, Oh, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to do hybrid and then finding this out the hard way. <laughs> so for those of you listening, you don't have to find it out the hard way. You get to ask these questions and, and understand what the, the options are. So how long were you hybrid before you said, I'm done, I'm going to go straight into private pay? Um, about a year. It was a lot of situations like we just discussed, and it just didn't make sense. I was getting so many referrals, you know, as my yeah. reputation in, in the city built. And 
I was no longer having that concern, like the phone isn't going to ring if I don't do these things. And also was like just specialized in a population that unfortunately a lot of people don't want to work with. And I didn't really feel the concern that business was just going to dry up out of nowhere. Yeah. I think that piece of when you understand who you're working with, when you understand your market, when people understand what's magical about you and how you can really help, it makes such a big difference. I think a lot of therapists are not clear about where their magic is or who they help. They try to, to reach everybody, right? I can, I can see everybody, anxiety and depression and trauma and this and that and the other thing. And they don't realize it actually dilutes them and makes it harder for people to remember them and refer to them. I often like, I have a podcast episode about this, but I say it all the time. Like you can't be the Applebee's of therapy and <laughs> you can't do it all. You just can't. Yeah. And if you're an insurance practice and again, no, no judgment here. If you are, um, you know, you can be more generalized for sure. But at the, if, on the other side of the coin, like if you want to be private pay, you really have to niche down and get a good understanding of who that client is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have this misconception though, that if you niche down, that is your niche forever. Mm -hmm. And like, those are the only clients you're ever going to see. And that's just simply not true. Agreed. Agreed. I think the other part too, I mean, going back to where you talk about the insurance clients or the insurance practices that you don't need to specialize I would posit that even if you're getting more than enough referrals, the idea of specialization isn't just for referrals, it's also for client care and getting great outcomes. And it's really almost impossible to get great exemplary outcomes across the board if you have a general practice. How do you even make sure that you're doing the right intake information and and reaching people, how do you make sure you have the right clinical consultation or the right training, the updated continuing education? We cannot be specialists in everything on the planet. And there, there is a point where we have to be honest about what does it take to get good quality care, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And it, you know, if you don't work with disordered eating, you certainly should not be taking on disordered eating clientele, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's why networking and referral building is so important because when that client calls, you can say, you know, I, I don't unfortunately specialize in A, B, and C, but so-and-so does. And I know they have openings. And yeah. then you've created this relationship where like the client just wants to land in the right spot and have the right fit. Like yeah. more often than not, they are so appreciative of that referral. And I think therapists in turn, like think, oh, the client is going to get really upset with me if I tell them I can't support them. And that is just not the case. The client actually really respects and appreciates the fact that you're like going the extra mile to say, oh, Miranda works with, you know, struggle A, B, and C. I really think that you should contact her. Mm -hmm. No, I think that piece of uh, even clients would call me sometimes and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking to meet with somebody, you know, once or twice a month to work like this. And I would say, you know what? the way that I do therapy, I don't get great outcomes that way. Even if I, you know, when I compared the people that I saw for eight sessions and eight sessions once or twice a month and eight sessions in a row, the eight sessions in a row got better outcomes. So I'm not going to see you that way. You know, you're going to turn me away. Yeah, I am because I know I can't get great outcomes with you or at the very least it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not going to practice on you to figure <laughs> out how to do this. Like, that's not how I was trained. That's, 
That's not where my magic is. It's, it's just not. I'm, I'm a little neurodivergent ADHD. I don't see you in a month. My brain has like, <laughs> it's gone, yeah. you know? And I feel like I have to, versus if I'm seeing you every week at a regular time, I'm like in it, I'm flowing in the, in the practice and into the place. So at what point did you decide to expand from solo to group practice? What were the indicators for you that it was time? Ooh, when did that happen? This is 2022. So through COVID, like the onset, I'm getting slammed with calls as we all are. We're all telehealth, right? And I, I have more calls than I can handle. Um, from March to like August 2020, I'm thinking, this is not sustainable. Like, yeah, I'm in my house. I'm not leaving, but like, this is exhausting. And started thinking about group practice, but I had no idea what I was doing. Again, just like starting my private practice. But I hired my first clinician January of 2021. Um, and now I have 12 and a psychiatrist. So it has, it has really like moved very quickly in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, and I plan to continue to expand, but you know, thankfully I hired a friend colleague at first and it was kind of a Guinea pig of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And if you're okay with that, we can figure it out together. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is by far the, the, not the best clinician I've ever hired, but it was the best decision I've made for my business to hire mm -hmm. him because he just got everything right away. He took my coaching into consideration because all of my group practice clinicians get my coaching and he just did everything the way I needed him to do it. And he was mm -hmm. full in a month. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Now, did you go and get some coaching since this was the first time? Did you go and hire group practice exchange or something like that so that you can understand the finances of it and figure that all out? Or you're like, no, I'm going to do this from scratch and just figure it out. It was a little bit of both. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of my, like, my personality type is like to build the plane as you fly it and figure it out as you go. Mm -hmm. um, I did purchase Maureen's membership, which was unbelievably helpful. Mm -hmm. And that membership did go untouched for the first four months that I had it. And then one day I was like, all right, I got to log in. I'm paying for this thing. Like download all the forms at least, like watch some videos. And then after that, I was like, I think that I get this now. I did do some coaching uh, as well. And that was helpful with someone who does own a group practice just to bounce ideas of like hiring, creating culture, um, yeah. what kind of leader do you want to be? Things like that. Yeah, I think that, that, uh, that piece of it, for me, right? So we have our business school and we have a whole group practice track and there's nothing more like sad to me because our, our lifetime business schoolers, they'd be like, oh, and I decided what I learned, it was so great. And I went ahead and, and moved into group practice, but they didn't use any of our stuff and they built the plane and then they come back and they're like, but I, you know, I'm not really like financially, something's not working. I'm like, oh my God, go back to the process. <laughs> I'm like, please, please, please go through the, go through the thing. Um, because there are, there's a lot to manage and think about um, that I think a lot of people, what were some of the things that you were the most surprised about in terms of, because um, I think sometimes it's just like, well, can I find the person and can I get them full? And then you find like, oh, like getting people full, like that, once you've done it once, like that's not necessarily the issue. What were the things that you realized like, oh, wow, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think at first I didn't really have a process of hiring. I just, and I always have as a hiring manager, always have gone off my gut. And thankfully it hasn't like 
bitten me yet, but I, I'm trying to be more intentional. Um, but you know, I just didn't have a good process for onboarding. And I also hired people at first as independent contractors because it was just easier to get up and running. But I, then I realized like, you don't really have control over the vision and mm -hmm. people can see as many clients as they want. So now shifting everyone to W2, that was, you know, that was a challenge to, to go backwards, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then also just our practice is 99% virtual throughout North Carolina. I have clinicians that live in Indiana that are licensed here and in South Carolina, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I've worked really, really hard to create a culture that feels cohesive because I want people to feel like they have teammates, even though we don't see each other often. Yeah. Um, and that has really worked out well, but it has taken so much effort. And then the other thing is like having good admin support for a practice this large, like can't do the billing, can't answer the calls, can't do all the things. So mm -hmm. I think I'm on admin number four now, uh, <laughs> one through three did not work out, but I hired my best friend. Some people would say that was not a smart move, but I had supervised him in two other community mental health jobs and it has been a godsend. Like mm. I cannot tell you the last time I checked our Spruce account to see if there were missed calls or like the email account to see if there were missed emails. I just know that everything is being done and taken care of. And that is an enormous relief for me to not have to like be in the business all the time. Yeah. And I think that allows you, right? If we're not working in the business, we work on the business. We can look at what the future plans are. We can do more than just put out fires and, and do that process. And I think too, sometimes like I, I imagine this person also understood you and knows you and there's a trust that's developed in that process because learning how to like, as <laughs> I was gonna say like, like learning how to convey how you think and what, how your brain works is really hard. And that's been especially difficult for me. I'm, I'm like a whirling dervish sometimes. <laughs> and for my, my staff, like it's, it took me a while to find the right people who like that kind of energy and to find ways to rein myself in and communicate in ways that other people can, can take it in. Right. Um, so it's such a, such a process and, and such a self-development process. And I think it highlights the places where, oh, am I really being clear in my communication with other people in my life? Do I have unrealistic expectations <laughs> all around that other people are just going to get my vision and like make it happen? Like, oh yeah, that's probably a theme. Um, let me work on this. Yeah, that's so well said. And he definitely gets my brain. You know, I'm autistic and ADHD. My communication style can be blunt. It can be scattered. Like I have to say, like, I'm going to send you this because I don't want to forget it. Like, it's mm -hmm. not that I need you to respond, but if it's not sent, then it's going to go down this rabbit hole of forgotten, like information. Yeah. And it allows us to have, like, if I'm being really direct, he doesn't take it personally. It's just more so yeah. like, this is, this is what I'm focused on right now. And it has nothing to do with anything else. So it's really nice yeah. to have that. You know, we've been friends for almost seven years now and it's, it's just easy. Yeah. So it makes yeah. me feel less like anxious about that communication too. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, that's one of the first things that we tell people with Kelly and I that we're, we work closely with is like, Hey, we're very, like, we, we, we're very direct communicators. We're very loving people, but when it comes, it's like, yes, no, go ahead, do the thing. 
And then we have to remind ourselves, especially when you're working with people virtually to be like, you know, hey, how are you doing? How have you been? Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, you know, what have you versus because that stuff doesn't naturally happen around the water cooler um, when you're moving through the through the process. Right. So it's such a magical thing. Um, <clears throat> so I want to ask you a question. So you said everything was on the table and I thought, oh, this is such a gro good groovy question. So you had an experience um, I know at some point in the last couple of years where like something unexpected happened as a business owner and you did a GoFundMe, right? And I want to ask like, what did you learn from that experience as a business owner, as a human? Um, because I think a lot of times as business owners, we tend, if left to our own devices, we tend not to leave a lot of wiggle room for the unexpected. And so when we don't plan for that in terms of our profitability, in terms of vacation, sick time, disability, all these other things, then suddenly something that happened that's like, it's not a, it's not a, if that's going to happen, it's when, like all of us are going to have something that's going to come up where we're going to be unable to work, whether that's for a week, whether that's for six weeks, like we all have those pieces and most of us are so conditioned to work paycheck to paycheck, you know, put a little bit aside, maybe that we don't create dynamics that allow us to be really sustainable. What did you learn from that experience? You want to describe a little bit about what happened and how has that changed the way that you run your business? Yeah, that's such, such a great question. And you're so right that it gets overlooked and we don't prepare for things. Even PTO people don't seem to understand how to build that in, but, um, so I got diagnosed with a really rare, weird throat condition that'll be chronic and lifelong. And I had to have a surgery last April. Um, and you know, throat surgery means that impacts my voice, which yeah. is basically my entire business other than my brain. So mm -hmm. I couldn't work and I was not prepared for this diagnosis. I didn't mm. know that it even existed. I didn't know that I was going to need surgery in my life anytime soon. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, both my coaching and my therapy practice came to an impasse where it was like, you can't work for a month. What are you going to do? And thankfully a friend did create a GoFundMe um, and it did raise a, a significant amount of money where I was able to, you know, get through two months without being able to work. Um, but what it did, well, it did, a, it did a bunch of things emotionally. What it did was like, holy shit, you have to just accept the help. Um, mm. because I didn't want her to post it. I didn't mm. want it to go live. I didn't want to ask for charity, especially, you know, as someone who's making money, charging people for coaching or whatever, I'm like, how am I going to ask for this money? Mm. Um, so that was number one. And then once that happened, I was just like, I have to have acceptance around this. This is just something I need right now for me to be okay. Um, but what it also did was getting like a short-term and long-term disability plan in place, because as someone with a chronic condition, I already know, like, I actually have to have a more intensive surgery this year, mm. uh, because the, the one last year didn't really unfortunately do the job. So this surgery will put me out of work for three months. And mm -hmm. I'm grateful that I have my group practice income. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm also preparing, you know, emotionally and financially right now to say, 
you've got to be able to to get through three months without being able to work. Yeah. Um, you know, and then also having, like I said, short-term and long-term disability in place and some other things like that. So mm-hmm. I think if you're listening, a lot of us at first don't realize like you really have to think intentionally and budget for time off and sick time and mental health time and unexpected emergencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and at first I think it's very tempting because you're like just making money and maybe you're broke from working elsewhere and to not invest in those things. But you know, life is so unpredictable yeah. and I, the, I just think we have to plan for the unexpected. Yeah. I think that's, that was definitely <clears throat> when we have people go through our business school, we have them do this calculator and we, we build in these kinds of things and people are always shocked of like, I only want to bring home this much money, but I need to make this much money to really have a sustainable business. And they're like, I don't, but these are the pieces, right? That, and I think that may be too, as I get, as I start heading towards 50, right? Like I have seen all the things happen. I've experienced all of these pieces. And I think it does change the way that you, um, that you move forward. And I think as scary as it can be initially to think, oh, I, I actually, my gross income goal is this to get this take-home pay. And it can be very, you know, oh, I need to charge this amount, whatever that amount is, in order to to have a successful, sustainable life, it will give you so much peace as you move forward, knowing that like you are okay. This business building process is a place of like really building confidence and building a sense of like, oh, I can really like take care of myself through the business. This business can support you that it's, you know, Kelly describes a lot of times, like it's this relationship, right? Where we're building this relationship of like, how can this business support me through whatever I need? And I need to communicate to the business what I need, right? In order for that to happen. And I need to listen to the business when it says, Hey, you're actually not bringing in enough for me to be able to support you through fill in the blank, whatever that is. And we need to, um, to make some changes. And that can, again, it can be scary to tell the person, Hey, no, I don't have any sliding scale slots or, Hey, I, I have to drop this insurance plan or, you know, again, yeah, no, I'm going to charge you for no showing, <laughs> you know, these are the, these are all the pieces, but that's part of, as part of life and part of the reality of things. So I just want to say, I really appreciate your vulnerability, Patrick, in sharing and talking about that. And I can imagine too, it has up-leveled you as a coach for other therapists, because if it wasn't something that you were planning for in your own life, it means that you weren't able to help other people. And I think that's one of the things that we find as, as business coaches is that there are, whatever our blind spots are, it's so easy for us to replicate that in our, um, for our coaching clients. And so that ability to be able to look at all the pieces and look at that big picture and, and to have that wider um, perspective, everything that you do and experience in that, you know, over time, it makes such a big difference in being able to really help the people that you're helping. So. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, I think that I always joke that my coaching is based on my my failures, my mistakes and my struggles, but it's really true because without those, like you said, those blind spots exist. And 
until this happened to me, I definitely did not have a plan for that. And mm. now I have to plan for that every single day because it's just something to, to continue to monitor. So when I'm talking to my coaching clients, it really is about if you can create the sustainable business that works for you, you can plan for the unexpected. And by having that security and that peace of mind, that actually allows you to grow, scale, and improve your business throughout the, the next couple of years and through your future, instead of always just like letting it, you know, kind of control you and, and flying by the seat of your pants. Mm-hmm. And getting into a place where then um, where you feel trapped and whether that's trapped to go get a job, whether that's trapped to accept that insurance company, whether it's trapped to say yes to something that's not your highest and best, whether that is trapped for, you know, having to do bankruptcy or to sell the house or whatever the scenario is like, there's a lot of different pieces. I, I once did a, um, a consult with someone and they were a part of, um, debtors anonymous. And they said the amount of therapists that they met, in that program was, was huge. Um, and I think it's, it, there's some systemic issues and it's not because therapists, there's something wrong with us. It's because systemically we are not taught to take care of ourselves, um, financially. And so that comes out in like weird sorts of ways. Um, so Patrick, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today. It was so impactful. What's the one piece of advice that you want to leave anyone who is listening today with about starting a counseling practice? I want to just say thank you for having me on. And I'm really glad we've become colleagues and friends too. And the advice that I like to give these days is to doubt yourself and do it anyway, because fear is something to embrace and step into, not to shy away from and let paralyze. And when you're feeling that fearfulness, that overwhelm, that imposter syndrome, that means that you're on the right track. Mm, awesome. So you can go check out more about Patrick and all things private practice podcast. And of course, you're here. You want some more free resources. You can also go to zinnime.com forward slash free. And we have amazing free trainings to make sure you start things out the right way so you can avoid the mistakes and missteps that Patrick and all the rest of us have have made. We're all out there here for you. We need more therapists in private practice right here, right now. There is more mental health need than any of us can possibly um, reach. You are needed, you are necessary, and we are all out here to help you make it happen. Until next time, y'all, keep doing great work. I hope you loved today's episode. If you're a therapist who's tired of those long hours, low pay, and constantly battling burnout, don't forget our free video training designed just for you on how to build and grow a sustainable, profitable solo or group practice. Head over to zinnime.com slash podcast to check it out today. Until next time.